Welcome to Soccer Better Season 3. We're Liz and Laura Ellen. Liz is a lawyer and Laura Ellen is the scientist. We've put our education to use by digging into the analytical side of all things soccer. Each episode, we discuss a piece of soccer or sports research. Join us as we discover how we can all soccer better. Liz, we are back with episode five of season three of Soccer Better, and this is an excellent article. Good job. I picked it, guys. We did it. We picked a good one. Okay, so let's not delay at all. I feel like the last episode, we had a very long intro. We don't need that long of an intro. We're just going to get right into it. So Let's get the, into it. The title of this episode's article is Psychosocial Outcomes Associated with Soccer Academy Involvement, Longitudinal Comparisons Against Age Match School Pupils. Again, a really long title, but that's okay. This article was published in 2020. And it was published in the Journal of Sports Sciences by Rongin and colleagues, uh, who is at Leeds Beckett University in the UK. And we should just say a big thank you um, to uh, Dr. Rongin for providing us with her article. Yes. Um, not only did she provide it after we reached out, but she provided it while she is on leave so she took the time to not only check her email but reach back out to us and i cannot thank her enough for um that extra bit of effort because i really enjoyed this article yes we really enjoyed it um but also if you're on leave don't check your email that's like the (laughs) other thing (laughs) uh but we appreciate it if you're going to check your email definitely respond to inquiries from soccer better that's the lesson (laughs) That is the lesson, guys. (laughs) From a random podcast in the U.S. Okay. Um, So just like this article implies, what this uh, study was really looking at were the psychosocial outcomes and for youth. And what um, they did was they compared youth who were involved in uh, soccer academies with school-aged youth who had some type of soccer involvement Um, And they compared them over a year, over an academic year, which I thought was like, this is really great. And so, um, yeah, I guess, Liz, what from just kind of the get go stood out to you about this article? Um, As usual, I'm going to point out this was only male students. However, she does talk at the 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 group does talk at the end of the paper that this should be redone with um, both male and female students. youth players so um, homework was given there's actually quite a few interesting homework assignments at the end of the paper which I hope someone takes them up on because I would love to review those papers I thought it was interesting that some of this research had been done about how youth uh, thrive or don't thrive in an academy setting and especially here they're talking about an EPL academy um, because they wanted to test like probably the most stressful the highest regarded kind of academy um versus just you know basically high school players and i mean the previous research was very split and some of the research said academies are really bad for the youth and i did not expect um that to come out of this and it's not that i didn't think um that it was possible but more i'm just surprised that that kind of outcome 
got published enough to be to be referenced I guess and I guess that's me being a little jaded about who may have initiated the research um, and where it got published no I think that is a very astute observation because oftentimes studies that have negative results or um, unfavorable results to kind of like the broader uh, environment or the broader kind of consensus um, really do have trouble getting um, published. I mean, I am on a team and we're trying to publish a, a research study right now and, and I'm not going to get into it, but that doesn't really challenge the norms, but just like calls them into question a little bit. And I did not, prim- I was not like the primary author of the paper, but um like the primary author I thought like did a really nice job of like hedging this picture and we are just having so much trouble getting it published. But anyway, um, I digress. I thought it was really interesting along those lines. So, um, so there are these academies that are associated with English premier league teams. And one of the things that, um, they've done in the UK is really try and provide youth with within these academies with a holistic um, approach to their well-being and health because there have been concerns that have been raised that right the academies are good for the psychological well-being or like the educational well-being of their athletes and they're just focused on the soccer and so there's been an effort over the past you know several years to really address a holistic well-being of the players in the academy and what I thought was really nice about this background is that's that's how it started with this thing like, okay, you know, we want to have this holistic approach, but but all the studies that are out there are cross-sectional, which means they did like a survey. It was just one point in time. And the innovation in this paper is that it's longitudinal. So they asked the same um, youth the same questions four times over the course of 12 months, which I thought was just so like, and I was also like, and you're going to continue asking these same youth questions over the course of many years, right? Like you're still doing this, you know, and obviously they're not going to say that in this paper, but I really hope they are because that's what I was curious about. I was like, okay, well, what do these things look like over five years? Right? Like, is it, you know, but anyway, I thought the 12 months, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. I thought the way that they laid out their introduction and argument for why this study was needed was really clear. I was like, "Mm -hmm, yep, I agree with everything you're saying, Uh, which to do that and to take your reader along that journey with you um, is really challenging to do. Uh, So I thought they did. I thought they did a nice job. Another interesting thing is they only looked at one academy and one school but they took an analysis of the students who were a part of both of those populations to make sure that they were in the same socioeconomic breakdowns. And I think that's something that a lot of people wouldn't have thought about, but because of the research that we've read and the things that we've looked at for what that means for you know, development, I was just blown away that that was part of this. And in, and even though they acknowledge, you know, one academy, one school is a very small sample and it is kind of insular. And, you know, in the future, hopefully we can do bigger studies to take that little bit of extra effort so that it wasn't just 
looking at, you know, a completely isolated cell was really nice. Yeah, I 100%. I noticed that too. I like wrote a note. I was like, oh my gosh, they actually like check this, which, you know, is so important. Okay, so let's get into, um, yeah, let's get, so, so they were just looking at the psychosocial outcomes and they had a couple measures, which are, um, yeah, measures that they used. Um, but what their hypothesis uh, was for the outcomes of this study, which I thought was really interesting, um, that they thought that um, the academy players would report more negative psychosocial outcomes than their peers who were just in, you know, like school and, and played high school, uh, soccer kind of like in school, which I thought that was like really interesting. I was like, okay, we're taking like a brave approach. You know, we think it's going to be negative, um, which, you know, like you had said, the previous research was kind of like 50, 50. So I guess you could have gone, you could have gone either way, um, with that. Uh, and so what they did then was they enrolled, um, 58, um, academy soccer players who were about 13, give or take, um, and 57 school-aged, um, soccer players who are again about 13, give or take. And as Liz noted before we uh, started recording, they reported the number of days and hours that they, I guess the number of hours that they participated in training every week. So on average, the Academy players played, um, about like 11 or 12 hours. Um, and then the looking here, sorry. Uh, and then the school players played about, uh, oh, training time was about two hours and then competition time was about, uh, one and a half hours. Um, so I think that's really important and I'm glad they put it. Uh, although I will say I wish it was in a table because they just have it in sentences and so it's a little harder uh, to read, but that's okay. I know sometimes journals have requirements that like you're only allowed to have so many tables and figures. And so sometimes you kind of have to work around that and put it in the text. Um, so what did you, you've already mentioned that you wish that it wasn't just men or like boys. Um, any, did you like, did anything about the methods or like the approach they use stand out to you, Liz? So I think that what stood out to me the most was their ability to explain all of this. And they explained some of the, like the alpha values and some of the statistical stuff that doesn't get explained usually. And so when I looked at this and they do, they do have lovely charts that are very easy to read, but for these parts that they didn't have the chart space for, I could actually follow a lot more of this because I could, I'm used to referring back. And so I would, I actually wrote some of that information so that I could just take it with me, like on a little note card to the different paragraphs. But it really helped me, as I've said before, as someone who doesn't do stats and doesn't do research. Um, so I ended up with note cards for this paper, which maybe is a little excessive. I mean, if anyone questions at all the degree of nerdiness that you and I both have, I think that is the perfect example of how we are <laughs> so nerdy. <laughs> um, so I can appreciate your note cards. And, and I actually, I noticed that too. I was like, oh, I appreciate it. So um, what Liz is referring to is uh, the authors explained kind of what different alpha values mean in regards to the strength um, of the, 
of the effect um, and the strength of, of coherence. I think they were talking about it in regards to um, the internal consistency or the internal validity of the, of the different measures that they used, which I appreciate that because oftentimes, even like when I read papers, and that's something I'm like pretty familiar with, even when I read papers, sometimes I'm like, okay, especially values that fall like right on the cutoff, like right around the cutoff line. I'm like, where is that strong? Is that medium strength? Um, so I thought that was very helpful um, as well. So they, um, used four different questionnaires and I'm just going to read the names of them. They're, I found them to be pretty self-explanatory. Um, so we have the recovery stress questionnaire for athletes. Then we have the balanced measure of psychological needs. Then we have kid screen 27, which kid screen stands for something. And it's a whole bunch of dimensions that I'm not going to read. And then we have the athletic identity measurement scale, which I found that was so interesting, right? And I think we can talk about this later at the discussion, but the athletic identity, I think is such an interesting topic, Liz, that I know you and I have talked, you know, back when we could do tailgates, you and I have had many conversations about kind of what the long-term um, identity is for athletes. Um, but we can get into that later. Um, yeah, so then they used these four scales and they administered them at four different time points across a 12-month period. And they did it kind of aligned with a, with a traditional academic school year um, in the Northern Hemisphere, I guess I should say. Okay, the results, Liz. What, what was the first thing that stood out to you in the results of this study? I guess just how close the results were for both groups, even, and I guess regardless of the, the extra practice time, um, especially on the stress recovery end, I would have expected the academy players to um, have both a, more stress um, because I feel like you're in an academy system because you're showing promise to somebody and they have these higher expectations of you. Um, and also for your recovery to end up being much better because you're practicing a lot more. Like you are in a system that is made to um, help you excel in that specific area. But overall, I mean, both groups were stressed in the first semester or first quarter, whatever you call it. And then by the, the last reporting, the fourth quarter, they were both better at stress and were recovering faster. So that was the most surprising one to me. I, like the rest of it um, made sense. Uh, I think there may have been one where I was like, okay, well, duh. But I mean, it's all part of the questionnaire. So uh, what was your most surprising result that you read? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think that, you know, what they found was that it's very similar for both of these groups, right? And these are like 12, 13 year olds. So I think that was also something that I had to keep reminding myself. So what 12, 13, that's normally going from like middle school to high school. That's like, right, right. You turn 13 in middle school. Wow. This is really bad. I have no idea. Maybe we should have looked yeah. that up. We're, we're, exactly really how... <laughs> we're really nerdy, except when it comes to knowing the age of school children. But that's fine. <laughs> you'll get there. You have, you, you'll have one soon enough. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think this is middle school. I think I think 13-year-olds, right? Yeah, because right. I think you turn 14 in ninth grade. Doesn't matter. 
So, but these were, it's not like these were like 17, 18 year olds who are, or like 16, 17, 18 year olds who may be looking to transition into professional soccer, right? These, you know, these kids are still like a a few years away, right? Most teams aren't signing 13 year olds, right? No, but I've seen two 16-year-olds hit the field this year for EPL, so it's not that far away. And how long have you been in this academy? So do you have that expectation that you want to be the next youngest player? Like, you've, who want, everyone wants to break that barrier, right? You want to make those records. So I don't know. I still feel like you wonder if you could play, like, if there's a game where your team is up, whatever, 9-0, you're like, maybe they'll throw me on the field. I don't know. What are right? these expectations? But like a 13, I mean, how, how tall are 13-year-old boys? <laughs> like, right? They're pretty They're pretty short. Well, they're not going to be goalies, that's for sure. Well, fair enough. Uh, anyway, I mean, I think that's what I thought. I, I guess that's like one of the things that I thought about. And, you know, my hope, and I don't know kind of what their funding looked like um, for this project, but... Like, my hope is that they continue to follow this cohort over the next couple years, right? As they get close to um, the point when, you know, for some of the academy boys, right, they're not going to continue any further. And they may have to make a decision to um, stop pursuing, you know, playing professional soccer, Um, which I think that's something that we had talked, that we had read an article about women, you know, girls who who stopped playing, like, at elite levels um, of soccer and, and their experience with that. So, anyway, so I think that was, like, interesting to me. Um, but, yeah, it – I guess I was kind of surprised. I don't know. I don't – you know, I think prior to this – prior to reading this article, if, if someone would have asked me, okay, Laura Ellen, like, do you think academies – like, what do you think the effect is of soccer academies on the psychosocial well-being of young boys? I don't, I don't know, right? Like, I don't, right. I don't know how I would have felt. So maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. And I think that the the authors make a really good point about and why their hypothesis was the way it was because they were trying to analyze how you interacted with your peers. Did you feel like you belonged? Did you have a friend group? How much did interacting with so many adults and having to live to a whole different set of standards change how you felt about fitting in or meeting expectations? Because when you're in the academy setting, you're working with trainers and you're working with, you know, possibly players that just have a different expectation. They're not, I mean, they're meeting these uh these individuals where they are probably physically, but there's a real, there would have been a real question for me whether or not they were meeting these individuals where they were emotionally and psychologically. And it sounds like whatever has happened to the academy system, and I'm sure there have been a myriad of changes, especially um, as it has become more apparent um, over, and I think I was looking at the dates for the different studies over the last 10 years, that the psychological aspects are really important to the overall well-being and the entire life of a soccer player and especially to a youth. So um, I also found that very interesting that the when she started quoting or when the team started quoting different uh, journals and different papers that had written about the, the psychology and that analysis, those were 
you know, 2012 or like they were much, much earlier or much later, um, much closer to where we are now. And when they're talking about the studies that had happened about, you know, just academy development in general, um, they were much closer to the beginning of the 2000s, you know, and, and even based on older papers, you know, that they had worked on. So um, seeing that big gap between when that really started to take effect it's not surprising, um, but I think it is surprising that the academies have met that challenge. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And I think one of the other things for me as I, you know, as I listen to you and as I think about it, right, when you have arguably one of the biggest leagues in the world, if not the biggest, you know, um, you know, most well-known Um, soccer league in the world saying hey this is a priority for us to make sure that the youth in our academies are holistically cared for not just their soccer training but also their emotional well-being their psychosocial well-being Um, that emphasis and kind of making that a priority makes it a whole lot easier for people like you and me who are who are really advocates for mental health care, for holistic perspectives on folks to say, okay, what can we do? What are some interventions and strategies that we can use to really ensure that we can take care of people holistically, right? And so there's this incentive coming externally from the clubs, like from the from the league saying this is a priority and the clubs are like okay if you know if the league says it's important yes we agree it's important but because we have this um support from the power structure to to put an emphasis on this i think it helps a lot um so yep Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have anywhere to go with that thought. That that was as so, far as my brain went. Do you think, like, based on this study, there was one big difference between the two groups, and so it was how it was their athletic identity and um, the feeling of exclusivity. So academy players had a much stronger feeling of exclusivity. They identified much stronger um, as soccer players, not as youths, not as teenage boys not as you know someone from a small town or a large town whatever it was they identified as soccer players what do you think that means the next steps needs to be that we push um to make sure that some of these risks and i would like you to discuss the risks that that implies um with the exclusivity where do you think we put the pressure now to make sure that these these academies continue to develop so these risks are mitigated yeah i think they're I think that's something that's right like so hard because when 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 we look at a premier league team or any team right that is like the top of the period the pyramid um i don't i don't know if you remember the series of commercials maybe oh gosh like five ten years ago uh by the ncaa here in the u.s that the commercials were like you know, some high percentage of high school athletes go on to do something else professionally. Anyway, there's like this whole series and it's like, they're going to be an accountant or whatever, whatever. Okay. That like essentially saying that, right? Like, even though there's a lot of people, there's a lot of kids, there's a lot of young adults who play um, sports at the collegiate level, 
the vast majority of them are not going to become professional athletes, right? right? This The exact same thing is true, and maybe even more so, right, in these um, Premier League academies. They have a ton, right? It's, it's a pyramid. They have a ton of kids that they're training, that they're investing in, and the vast majority of them probably aren't going to play for that particular Premier League team, but also may not play for any Premier League team. You know, maybe they'll go abroad and, and play somewhere else. So all of that to say that I think, right, it's really hard because in order for the kids to do well, to succeed in the academy environment, the the youth themselves have to buy in to the process. Right. They have to believe internally. They have to have this intrinsic motivation that like, hey, there's a chance for me, right? Um, but then how do you like balance that with like, well, statistically, we know that you may not get that chance. Right. Um, and also recognizing that these are children, right? Like they don't necessarily have the cog, especially, you know, like 12, 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds don't have the cognitive abilities to think about counterfactuals, to think about, you know, hypothetical situations, you know, we know that adults are terrible at assessing risk, right? Like, let's look at COVID as a perfect example of that. Like, we're really bad as adults. We're even super intelligent people are really bad at saying, like, this is my percent chance of X happening. Right. Um, And so I, I don't know what the answer is, right? I don't know how to like truly holistically care, not just for the youth while they're in the academy, but how do we care for these youth for throughout like the course of their lives or through their thirties or, you know, kind of whatever. Um, but, but beyond kind of that inflection point where it's decided, yes, you will become a professional athlete or no, you will not. Um, what do you think? I just like, I feel like I just like did a big like soapbox. I'm, I'm like, people probably are like, oh, she did it again. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Uh, that's okay. Uh, what no, do you think, those Liz? Are, those are really important considerations. Um, I think that when they talked about the specific um, consequences like that are, are associated with a high athletic identity or probably even any kind of, you know, singular identity for a person, you know, you don't have good coping skills, you're willing to put yourself at risk, um, all of it leading to like identity loss and depression and a willingness to jeopardize your own well-being. I think for me, it just really emphasized that we needed to normalize continuous uh, psychological well-being, that people who, anyone who leaves this academy has to be so well-versed in dealing with a whole set of stressors, right? They had to deal with school and they had to deal with 10 times the amount of training that their peers ever dealt with. They had a bunch of expectations. And it sounds like the academies are doing a really good job of making them feel like they can deal with all of these things and that they have a balance for their life. But if that drops off and you enter a workforce, if you're really good at dealing with stress and you're really good at multitasking, and you enter a job like firefighter where you're constantly dealing with that again and you have the ability to put yourself at risk and you're like it's fine i used to do yeah i used to put myself at risk all the time i can think about others i can think about my you know group 
having to meet with a therapist twice a week because it's normal and it's just part of your job becomes so much more important because you can identify and someone can help you identify and address those risk factors so that you don't go into a depression and so that you don't leave to go up a ladder and into a burning building five minutes early where if you just wait a couple of minutes and you have your partner you both come out alive I think for me it really emphasized that I mean for all jobs but for any job where it is a high stress job having someone on site and part of your working your 40 hours or I mean I know firefighters work more than 40 hours most people work more than 40 hours but part of your work week is I meet with a therapist um I think it really just emphasized that for me and I haven't jumped on that soapbox in a while so I'm happy to take the opportunity to get right back up on it um we need to pay teachers more and we need more therapists and we need them inside the workplaces on permanent basis they just need to be constantly available and part of your work life so again this is another example of how liz has really practical advice and i just like to like theorize about a lot of big uh, picture <laughs> things and liz is like okay and practically we can have therapists in the workforce <laughs> which is it or the workplace which is a great perfect suggestion liz um yeah i don't Thanks. yeah no i think i think that is i think that is just like super important but um yeah and, and i mean you hear i don't know you hear kind of in quotes, um, depending what, in what circles you run, um, you may hear about just like how really difficult it is, even for athletes who have, um, who make it professionally. And then when their careers end, like, what does that mean for them? You know, this isn't just a problem for, or, or an issue, right. For like 12 and 13 year olds, this is also an issue for, um, or, or something to think about for, you know, 26, 27 year olds who are coming to the end of their career or people in their early to mid thirties, uh, if you're, if you're lucky. Um, okay. Liz, that, I mean, that feels like a really good place to wrap up, but, uh, I feel like we're in a good place. We didn't, we're in a good place. We didn't break up or get back together during this show. So I, I think it's a win. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, Liz and I, you know, we go to, to couples therapy. No. Actually, I mean, I have heard of friends who do go to, who go to, who do do like uh, friend couple therapy together. But anyway, that's like a whole other thing. I don't, I don't think we're there idea. I know. We're, give us, give us another season or two. No problem. It's true. We love, I love me some therapy. Um, Great. Well, Liz, is there anything else uh, that you would recommend to our listeners about how to soccer better? Uh, I mean, talk about your feelings with your friends, even if it's just a tailgate, and make sure that you are taking care of yourselves, please. Yes, I think that's a great reminder. It is important to be vulnerable uh, with your friends and, you know, allow the people in your life, the people who care about you to support you in whatever you're going through, Um, you know, and if that's, you know, your team losing or your team winning or your favorite player getting injured or whatever, whatever it may be, you know, um, or something that's like truly like personal that's happening in your life. Um, allow your community to come around you. And if you're able to have access to mental health care, then please, please, please take advantage of it. Um, 
Yeah, and then we can all stalk her better. All right, Liz. Yeah. Well, I'll talk to you later. Bye, Laura Ellen. Bye. Thank you to our host, the Beautiful Game Network. BGN covers teams across the MLS, USL Championship, and USL League One. Check out podcasts and written content at bgn.fm. You can follow us on Twitter at BGN Soccer Better. Head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Otherwise, let us know what you thought about this episode and be sure to share it with a friend. Remember, you can always soccer better. The music in our show is Empty Rooms by Booz Radley. Thanks to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier to USL, MLS, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. Tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas? Looking for a unique, completely custom kit for your youth club, Sunday league squad, adult, or even pro team? Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. Let them help you design your custom kit today at IcarusFC.com.